This is Salt and Spine. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. And you're tuning in for a special episode today. We're recording here in front of a live audience at Omnivore Books in San Francisco. Hello, everybody. Awesome. And we're joined in front of this audience by today's guest, Katie Parla. Now, Katie is a New York Times bestselling author of more than 35 books, including now seven cookbooks, um, a culinary journalist and an Emmy-nominated TV host. She spent the past two decades based in Rome and chronicling food and life across Italy through these various mediums. Her latest cookbook, Food of the Italian Islands, offers a wide-ranging look at Italy's islands from Sicily to Sardinia and beyond, with 85 authentic recipes, 120 stunning photographs from the sun-baked beaches, coastal villages, and rolling hillsides. So hi, Katie. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Oh my god, I'm so excited to chat with you, and thank you to Omnivore Books for hosting. Yes. Grazie. Always lovely to be here um, with Celia and the crew at Omnivore. Uh, We always like to start just by learning a little bit more about you and your life and how you got to where you are before we dive into the book. So um, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Beginning. Um, growing up as Katie, I, I know you say you grew up in Italy's unofficial 21st region, which is what? New Jersey. Uh-huh. <laughs> so growing up in New Jersey, uh, grand- your grandparents are Italian, you have Italian heritage. Can you talk about the role that food and particularly that sort of Italian influence played in your life as you were a kid and growing up? Yeah, absolutely. My parents met in the restaurant industry and my dad had a restaurant until about six months ago. And so restaurants, dining, and hospitality were always really central to my upbringing and just like everything that I thought and cared about. And growing up in New Jersey in an Italian-American family means that you identify as Italian without knowing anything about Italy. <laughs> um, and, you know, my family uh, emigrated from Sicily and Basilicata at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. So there was quite a disconnect between the language and food and all the things that they would have been enjoying. Um, And a huge contrast with what was on our table, which was a mix of various international cuisines with the obvious spaghetti and meatballs, chicken parm, you know, Jersey stuff. Sure. Yeah. And I visited Italy for the first time when I was 16 and had been obsessed with history and classics for years before that and so when i got to rome and it was like kind of gritty kind of scary and filled with all this food that i didn't recognize i was like i gotta move here and so (laughs) when i was a sophomore not everybody would have that reaction right no gritty unknown food right no no i mean literally everyone got pickpocketed on my school trip like Uh four times So we spent a lot of time at the police station. Sure, <laughs> but I was I was like, this is my this is my place. Yeah, um, you know, like I you know I'm like a Philly person, not a New York person. Do you catch my drift? Yeah, uh huh. Um, and yeah, so I was like, I got I got to learn everything about this. Obviously, I'm gonna move to Italy when I grow up, and then I did that. Yeah, and at that, had you had an interest in Italy before that? Because you you say I was the kid who said she'd move to Italy one day. Was that the moment when you went on that first trip in high school? March ninety six. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. You remember the exact date. Um. So so you have this trip. You you sort of make that your vision. Come back. Go to college. Mm-hmm. 
little place in New Haven. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, start continuing. Well, I went. To, I lived in New Haven for four years. <laughs> um, well, you know, I only I gravitate towards pizza capitals. Sure. Okay. So there you go. Right. Played a big part in my uh, choice of colleges. So um, after graduating with an art history degree um, and like barely any Italian, although I did really well in my classes, a little great inflation at Yale. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> Um, I moved, I moved to Rome and I was like, oh my God, there's even more food I didn't know anything about. And it's like really different in this village called Frosinone, which is like an hour train ride. Like now I've got to learn even more about more places. Uh-huh. But you, you were interested in the food, but you studied art history. You yeah. moved to Rome, you start doing archeology span tours yeah. or architecture tours rather. Exactly. Um, and that's sort of your initial career path, right? Yeah. I mean, I, my first official job was teaching history at a boarding school. Okay. Um, a job for which I was deeply unqualified. <laughs> and I was also Some more great inflation. It was there. absolutely, yeah. I mean, look, they paid me 500 euros, but with a one bill, right? The 500 euro bill have has anyone seen this? I have not. It's the size of a, a pillowcase and it's magenta <laughs> and and you can't spend it anywhere. <laughs> right. So it was it was a yeah, you can't you can't get change on a 20 sometimes. So I was like teaching kids history and taking them on field trips every Tuesday for a double period and I was like they hate everything that I'm telling them but like I feel like adults might care about what I'm saying. Uh-huh. So I launched a tour tour career um but i spent a lot of a lot of time during the tour telling people where to eat sure so i was like hmm maybe there's something here and randomly saw an ad for a master's degree in italian gastronomic culture which they didn't tell you you could do at yale no one mentioned it (laughs) otherwise i would have already done it um and so i did that i did that ma and started offering more and more food tours and they eventually eclipsed the archaeological offerings so Uh i still do the tours it's my favorite thing to do. Yeah. I'm an anxious writer. And, you do the food and the architecture tours both. I tend to do mostly food tours, mostly but food. In, but intersperse a lot of uh, urban planning, archaeology, and architecture. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was a gradual shift moving into food. You start, you know, doing some food writing, mm-hmm. writing for out, um, news outlets, yeah. magazines, that sort of thing. When did cookbooks become part of the picture? So or I was books because you've written 35 books, but only seven are cookbooks. So how yeah. do you sort of get into this publishing? Well, career? I, I was, um, underemployed okay. <laughs> when I moved to Italy. And so I wrote emails and even sent some faxes to, uh, guidebooks, like every guidebook you can imagine. And no one got back to me for like a year or a year and a half, but because they pay so little, um, many writers and people who are contributors like updating, like pieced out on their gigs and they would always yeah. be scrambling for someone. Uh-huh. And I was like, I will do that work for no money. Um, and so I started essentially rewriting cookbook, uh, rather uh, guidebooks. And then after building a lot of relationships, especially with the rough guides, I started writing them full on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was also writing this like blog on like, some now defunct Apple platform, sure. writing lots of weird reviews and things and always gravitating towards the food part. And so I would like get a guidebook to update and I'd look at the food section. I'm like, I don't know who's updating this, but I'm not taking this over. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of also that natural like affinity to the food aspects. Yeah. But uh, some of these books are actually still in print, but about uh, 20 of them are out of print. 
Okay. <laughs> a, f- a few that you can still find, though. So you start then moving more into cookbooks, um, becoming more focused on food and the history of, of Italian food and cuisine. Um, talk about some of your early books. You know, you did Food of the Italian South, Tasting Rome, Joy of Pizza. Like, how did you sort of decide what the next book project would be? And then we'll get to the islands. Va bene. Um, so I was always looking to learn new things as I was writing. And so after working on so many guidebooks, I was like kind of over this. Um, And then there was kind of like a nightmare with the National Geographic thing where they like said they were going to put my name on the cover for like a really low fee. Uh So I agreed to it and then they didn't. And I was like, hmm, maybe this situation isn't bad. I should get an agent. Um, Yeah. uh, And so like having an agent, thinking about how to tell the stories of Rome that I was already writing in articles i essentially like repurposed that content and integrated recipes into it to create tasting rome um which is kind of the template for a lot of the books that i've written in that it's history culture and recipes Mm -hmm. um and that became i think a it was a moment maybe a few years after jerusalem came out when authors were able to prove that city oriented cookbooks could actually sell okay because before that it was very challenging my agent always said like this is a really hard sell yeah but jerusalem proved that was not the case anymore and so deep dives into single geographical areas became viable but then i started writing other books like flower lab was the one after that i wrote it for adam Mm -hmm. leonti about milling flour at home for pasta pizza bread and pastry which is like the messiest thing you can do in your life i see some people out there with looking a little triggered from their milling days. Um, but uh, yeah, I like, I just got into this groove. I was writing books for myself, books for other people, like one or one or two a year. Uh huh. Um, That's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. On top of doing guess how many healthy relationships writing. I had during that time. The answer is none. No healthy relationships during that time. Um, so I, was thinking about the parts of Italy that were underappreciated and underdiscovered and food of the Italian South, which is in a way the like prequel, not really prequel. That's the wrong word, but the previous title that food of the Italian Island sort of follows, mm-hmm. um, how to tell the story of a very large geographic area, finding what those places have in common while also, uh, showcasing what makes them distinct. Yeah. And so, I really wanted to tell the story of everything south of Rome, but wanted to stop at Sicily so people would not get distracted by that island. Sure. And they would focus on Molise and Basilicata, Calabria, Puglia, and Campania instead. Uh huh. And with any of these books like that, that look at, you know, the islands here or, or larger regions, how much of that is pieced together as you're building the book, right? You've spent 20 years now guiding other people around Italy. How much of it is like, oh, I already sort of have a sense of what the commonalities are, what the similarities are, what the themes are going to be in this book versus what? how much of it comes from like the actual research of building the book? Oh, wow. It's uh, The books always evolve a little as I'm researching. Maybe Food of the Italian South less. Okay. Because I really just said like, these are the five regions. Yeah. Um, and now I have to tell the story of those five regions. Um, so the the limits were defined. Uh-huh. Food of the Italian Islands kind of evolved because at first I was thinking about Sicily. But then I'm like, well, Sardinia 
has some common history, like maybe there's a bond there. And then, well, what about Ponza and the Neapolitan Archipelago? And if we're really doing the islands, Venice has like several hundred of them. Uh (laughs) Summer sandbars. Ed Anderson, the photographer's in the crowd. He knows all about the sandbars. We almost ran into a few in my boat, Laura. Sorry about that. I apologize. Yeah, like the, the Italian Islands book did evolve over the course of the five years that I was researching it. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm very happy with how it kind of turned out, I think I'm going to lose sleep forever over not including one island in a lake in Lombardy. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm sure everybody already is aware and has called you out on it. I've gotten so many emails. You have. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> But, okay, so it's a little... I know. It's a little island that's going to terrorize me for the rest of... Or not the rest of my life, until the second printing. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Well, I'm curious, too, because I think a lot of people who don't maybe have a lot of exposure to Italian islands or um, dream of going to Italian islands think of just going to Sicily and having this beautiful time. And you open the book with sort of a wanting to have a little bit of a harsh reality for folks, right? You write, no one goes to the Amalfi Coast or Capri hoping for bad weather, but there's few places I know of that bring such high aesthetic drama before a rainstorm. I love that you opened it with that because it does sort of paint that picture of like, this is a real place. This isn't just a postcard. Yeah, that was my first trip, the the trip with my Latin class in oh. March 96, um, where the classmates in our matching backpacks minus a bunch of wallets um, (laughs) did like, you know, a dozen cities in eight days. Most of it was spent in gift shops Uh and um, we were in Sorrento. The weather was terrible. Like no one wanted to go to Capri because like the seasickness is real, but a few of us went and it was, it was really is the coolest experience I've ever had there. And I know that a lot of people really treasure their memories of of Capri. It's not a place that I naturally gravitate towards. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Bay of Naples, Ischia and Procida to me are just like more my spaces. Um, but if you can get there on to Capri during a rainstorm out of season, do that. And that's the only travel advice you're going to get from me, JK. There's a whole there's a whole section <laughs> in the resources. Yeah. There's a whole there's a whole the QR end of the book. Code, yeah. <laughs> there's a QR code, lots of tips. Yeah. Um, speaking of travel experiences, you also write about um, a, a lengthy and eventful train ride that you took. I think this was not your high school trip, right? This is after you first moved to Italy. This was before. Before. Yeah. Um, so, in college, I was obsessed with the Amazonomachy. Everyone knows what this is. I can see <laughs> uh, the battle between the Greeks and the Amazons, which was depicted okay. in Roman funeral art, um, especially coffins. Right. So okay. second century, there's essentially deforestation. Cremations become really expensive. And so people stop cremating. They start inhumation burials. So that means a lot of new funeral real estate and Romans take Greek myths totally out of their original context and then imbue them with different meaning. And so, I just became so obsessed with the Amazonomachy myth carved on marble coffins. So I got a travel grant to go look at all of them. Spent wow. two months in Rome. Okay. And the funds also afforded me the possibility to go to the Palermo Archaeological Museum where there was one sarcophagus, which was great because I wanted to go see where my great-grandfather was born in 1899. And I booked a, a train because it was I was on a budget. So sure. I was like, great. You know, five... 
50,000 lira train ride, 25 bucks, sleeper car. This is going to be amazing. What an adventure. And so I get on the train. It like inches its way towards Calabria. And it's so hot. It's like the hottest day in August. And no one will open any windows because Sicilians are terrified of drafts. And so I'm like (laughs) dehydrated, hallucinating. Everyone knew to bring a full meal spread. And I'm like starving. There's no bar car. It's a nightmare. And then the boat the the train gets on a freaking boat and i have no idea what's happening like you're so, asleep or just not aware i'm i'm it's not sleep it's, it's not like sleep. Okay. the absence of consciousness <laughs> sure like imagine you're in an enclosed train car and everyone has just brought like a full like tuna fish sandwiches and they got their calamari set like it was so intense Uh (laughs) and i'm just like starving and scared and i don't know what's happening so the you just hear like clanking and then the train like goes on a boat and then 20 minutes later you're in sicily like and you're like where's the bridge what's going on um and there are a variety of complicated political and economic reasons that there is no bridge (laughs) crossing the strait of messina uh one thing i learned uh in a very surprising way in Uh the year 2000 (laughs) i love it so you decided to break this book up thematically instead of by course which is different than than your previous books which you did arrange by course what was the the thinking there i get wonderful feedback from my readers so thank you some of you are in the crowd um in italy we course our meals so we start with the antipasto mm-hmm. move on to the primo secondo contorno dolce of course got to get the digestivo in there too aperitivo if you're in the north too before everything but um that's not the way that people eat in the u.s generally and my readership is mainly in the states uh, or i should say north america okay and I thought, well, maybe it's just more practical and less intimidating if I break it up into like themes. So we've got like, you know, the snacks and starters. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got the drink section at the back and and sort of genres like fish and and meat, um, lots of soups and legumes. Yeah. I, fish I'm saving for last because actually there aren't that many fish dishes in the book. Yeah, which you, you've said is like surprising to some people, right? Because they see the book and they see the cover yeah. and they assume it's going to be very fish and seafood heavy and it's not. Yeah. No, people DM me all the time like, oh, I get your book, but I hate fish. I'm like, you're in luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's the link to pre-order. And that's because historically uh, there was not a lot of fish seafood consumption. And if it was consumed, it was primarily not fresh right exactly yeah like fresh fish or even cured fish of prized cuts was for nobility Mm -hmm. um and if you look at the sort of classic fish that are consumed in the islands i'll take sardinia as an example it's botarga that's been produced there since phoenician times cured gray mullet row yeah that is really a defining part of sardinian identity and now of course you can find every imaginable fish the Cagliari fish market, San Benedetto fish market, um, has an incredible array from the lagoon nearby, from the sea, from abroad. Um, but refrigeration, ice, and cash are things that weren't really super present in the Italian economy sure. um, until the mid-20th century. And so spaghetti with clams might be the sort of symbolic seaside meal, but it's not as though people have been consuming it for centuries. Sure. 
Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And also that, you know, someone might look at the book or the cover and assume that it's very coastal heavy, that in the same way it might be, they would think it's focused on seafood, it's focused sort of yeah. on the coast. And and you say intentionally, like, one, you say you can cook island food wherever you are and with whatever you have, and that your focus wasn't just on the coastline. Um, one of the things I really loved is the, sh- the uh, piece on shepherd culture, which of course is not sort of a, a coastal thing, right? But is very prevalent on, on some of the islands. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, Sardinia is one of my favorite places in the universe. And because of deforestation, including some that took place during Roman times, okay. there are these vast grazing lands. And so sheep outnumber Sardinians. Okay. And, you know, therefore you have a very vibrant shepherd's culture, that depending on the depending on the terrain, depending on the microclimates, could mean that people are just kind of grazing around their villages, or it could mean that they're doing a transhumansa, grazing into the mountains and then down back towards the coastal plains, depending on the weather. And so, a vibrant culture has emerged from this that has its own cuisine. Really, I mean, carta musiga pane carasal was developed so that shepherds could take bread with them, and they uh-huh. would. When it when pane carasal comes out of the oven, it's it's crispy, but it's still pliable enough to fold. And you can put in your little shepherd satchel, which uh-huh. is the cutest thing to wear ever. Um, <laughs> Do you have one? I don't have one. It's the not only <laughs> it's the only shepherd's tool that I currently do not okay, own. Okay. Um, but it's uh, it's on my wish list. Yeah, it's on my Amazon list. Jk. <laughs> um, uh, down with Bezos. Um, the um, the knife culture, like. The um, clothing, all of these things are really part of this rural identity in, in Sardinia that varies from place to place because it is such a large island, but has that sort of necessity for practicality and nourishment. Yeah. And they have political power. I mean, Absolutely. Shepherds have huge power. Enormous power because so many people raise uh, sheep for milk. Um, I guess it's used for milk, um, which is then, you know, sold to larger companies like the the just the sheer number of people who are in the dairy business, especially the the sh- shepherding dairy business is is huge. And when they protest, they can sometimes cause all sorts of complications for people in power, which has happened quite frequently. Yeah. <laughs> causing when- causing the delay of a soccer team departure for a game in Milan. Sure. Among other <laughs> Famous incidents. Well, once you get to your satchel, you can join them too. I'm on it. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, talk about urchin diving. I thought that was really <laughs> fascinating too. So um, during the pandemic, I, like so many people, was looking for a hobby that would waste a lot of time. <laughs> and so I took a free diving course. Um, and although I passed the pool test, I failed the ocean test. Okay. <laughs> Therefore, I thought maybe it's better if I hunt for things that don't move very fast <laughs> and are just below the waterline. And so I have, you know, my urchin tools. I got my little, I got my urchin satchel. Okay. You do have that satchel. It would totally clash with the shepherd satchel, mm. but, um, and I'll go out and, you know, with a kind of like a putty knife, uh-huh. pry them off with my urchin cutter, open them up. And then, you scoop them out with some bread or spoon and you just eat them right out of the sea. Right out of the sea while yeah. you're while you're floating. Yeah, when you kind of like they look like scissors kind of yeah. and you cut them you crosswise. Okay. Um this is always a word that my editors are like you don't know what that word means. <laughs> crosswise? Um yeah, if it's like a circle and you cut it like that way, 
Anyway, yep. this is a visual medium, right? Uh-huh. Okay, yep. perfect. Uh, absolutely, yes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so you like take the top off and then you scoop it out. But first you run the, like you run the row. It's not really the row, it's the gonads. Uh-huh. Through the seawater to clean all the little flakes of shell that you've made by smashing the shell while opening it. At least that's my MO. And then you eat it right out of the shell. Amazing. It's great. It's free. Wow. Yeah. 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 <laughs> This is the first book you've self-published. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that first, decision. but not last. Okay. First, <laughs> but not last. So it, it was a good thing. And what prompted that? And what was that experience like for you? And I know you produced it. I mean, produced, yeah. like printed everything entirely in Italy as well. Yeah. So, you know, in the course of the past decade that I've been working in publishing in a significant way, I don't count the writing guidebooks. Okay. Sure. Um, but, you know, that first book I wrote for National Geographic, like I really felt screwed by that company because they lied about my name being on the cover and i was like that sucks that that doesn't feel good and then i had all of these experiences with publishing that were a real mixed bag yeah um and i finally looked at my finances and i was like okay how much am i spending to make this book versus what my advance is and i realized with every single book i was going out of pocket at various periods of the process uh-huh. and that no longer felt okay to me even as a well-known of course published dozens of books at this yeah. point author and you know i think it's important to talk about numbers here because it's you know people are very uncomfortable talking about money but i'll give i'll give sort of an example that i think um has some round numbers that people can understand uh-huh. like if your cookbook advances a hundred thousand which is you know a fairly normal sure. not exaggeratedly great advance um that means that 15 percent goes to your agent and your publisher will dole it out either in quarters or thirds Uh the first one you get upon signing the last one you get three six months or even a year after publication and so that whole advance has to cover the creation of the book uh photography Mm -hmm. development testing research and then also publicity and marketing because the advice everyone in publishing will give you is get your own publicist Mm -hmm. and do your own marketing because the publishers actually aren't as supportive as they tell you when you sign. And so, you know, for books, I I would have to already with that quarter that I got, I was already in the red and I would have to go out of pocket and I wouldn't see that money again until later, but I'd already spent it on the testing and the ingredients. And, And I was like, this is just not something that I can justify anymore. And, I wondered if I could do it myself and if I could actually make money. And so I crunched some numbers and realized, you know, with the $35 cover price, I could spend a hundred thousand to produce the book. And after about 2,500, 2,700 books sold, I would break even. Uh And that after investigating the payment terms with printers and binders that I wouldn't have to come up with cash up front. I could sell books via pre-sale okay and then pay out the production costs over the course of six months so my last printer invoice is due in july okay and so i was like okay this seems more and more attractive but like what about logistics right that was daunting and i realized okay well if i'm spending a hundred grand on a book it can't all be spent on photography and design and i hired a freelance editor i've got to really dedicate about a quarter of that 
to logistics, like moving the book across the sea and then renting space in a warehouse that deals with distribution. And why not print it here? Self-publish, but print here. I wanted to see it all and I wanted to have creative control. And like when you see the book, it's really like the colors are really intense. And if I hadn't been there to tell them like more, they were like no um and i was like see and then we would go back and forth like the book smells like ink it's got that new book smell um it's yeah it's part of the creative process that that i really wanted to be a part of and you know when you sign a cookbook contract especially when you have established yourself as someone who sells books they start adding in more little clauses that make you think that you're getting some control. Mm-hmm. Like you can totally have input on the cover, but what happens is you get an email with with the cover and they're right. like, this is your cover now. You may provide input on this one option. Yeah, they're like, we're going to delete whatever email you send with input. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I um, I hired Ian Dingman, who's this fantastic designer who did Food of the Italian South. He sent me 56 covers, which honestly is too many. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I was overwhelmed. Um, but then, you know, because I, I also have really, it's so important, like the relationship that I have with my readers, I've cultivated a really great rapport and back and forth and I take their feedback really seriously. So I figured like, okay, these are eight or so that I like, and then let's crowdsource the winner. Yeah. And so that was a really fun thing. And then we got this cool. like crazy over the top, bold color, lots yeah. of, I mean, there's an anchovy on the cover. Yeah, it's cool. It's a it's a salted anchovy because you know Islanders don't mess with the fresh stuff as much. Yeah, I love it. So not the first or the first, but not the last. Right, self published. Yeah. Um, and that's I think that's really helpful to have that insight. You know, we've talked to a lot of authors who share some of that insight about the advance has to cover all of these things, yeah. but even just crunching some of those numbers and realizing financially that you can do that. That's impressive. Yeah. Um, I wish we could talk about a lot of recipes in this book and that we had unlimited time. But um, I was really intrigued by this recipe for Parmigiana di Palette. Is it Palette? Palette. Palette. Um, which is a, a version of sort of eggplant Parmesan, right? But nopales, like the cactus yep. pads, grow and you use them in, in place of eggplant in this eggplant Parmesan recipe. Yeah, this is one of those recipes that is made by just one person. Okay. (laughs) So most of the recipes are kind of symbolic of a food culture, but this is just Raffaellina's Parmigiana di di Paletta. And if you've ever been to Italy, especially in the summertime, you see the prickly pear cacti all over the place and people are going ham on the prickly pears Uh and they're leaving the cactus pads behind. Uh Uh, Not Raffaellina. So she uh, will like blanch them. They kind of have like this... I don't know, mucusy consistency for lack of a better term. Sure. Can you tell I'm a writer? Make uh-huh. things sound delicious. <laughs> um, so you have to like process them a bit in order to achieve a nice consistency that kind of is a bit similar to eggplant in the end. Uh-huh. Um, and then uh, you batter it, you can fry it or just bake it, and then you layer it with, you know, tomato, cheese, and uh, basil. Yeah. And it's great. Incredible. I would not, I, I did not realize too, it was just a one, one person's yeah. recipe, but yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah. And I, I love that you included it. Um, pesto. So people think they know pesto. Um, you have four pestos in here, all from Sicily. Seven. Seven? Okay, four from Sicily, yeah? Or or are they are all seven? So six from Sicily. Six yeah. from Sicily. Wow, okay, okay. So Sicily goes about hard that. for pesto. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, talk about that and, and the, the variations. 
Well, first of all, you got to give props to Genova for having the most powerful pesto PR in the game. <laughs> yeah. Um, because everywhere outside of Italy, when people hear pesto, they think of the Genovese version. Right. But pesto is, you know, a sauce that's made from pulverized ingredients, generally herbs, olive oil, garlic, sometimes cheese. In the case of Sicily, often tomatoes. Um, maybe pesto from Trapani is the most famous after the pesto from Genova, which employs almonds. You have the kind of more contemporary pesto uh, with pistachios made uh -huh. from around Mount Etna, but now found all over Sicily. Um, Carlo Forte in Sardinia has got its own version with tuna and the Ligurian version because it was a village found, founded by Ligurians. Um, and you can make pesto out of anything you want. And, you know, the, the recipes are in the book, but there's also a formula. It's like, okay, sure. Don't follow a recipe. It's like, do you have some pine nuts or like whatever nuts you like? Add some garlic, uh, some olive oil. And if you want tomatoes, nuts, fine, herbs. And yeah. then blend it all up, adding the oil slowly. If you're using cheese, fold it in at the end. Uh huh. Pesto. Pesto. Done. And you don't have to have like a big, beautiful marble mortar and pestle, although I hope that you do mm -hmm. for your, you know, the <laughs> aesthetics of your kitchen. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in reality, a lot of people in Italy aren't aren't using the mattarello to roll pasta they're using a crank machine yeah they're not using a pestle to make mortar and pestle to make pesto they're using a food processor yeah um that's just a fact right kale pesto it's okay or no see si. yeah va bene okay all does right. it taste good <laughs> yeah yes I, I then mean, it's fine. the ones i've had yeah <laughs> yes uh maybe not all of them <laughs> um so you're coming up on is it this year that's 20 years of living since you moved to rome yeah 20 years 20 in january years so in january just passed 20.2 okay. years basically um as you're reflecting on on that time like any big takeaways or lessons or like had i ha wish i would have known this 20 years ago that trains go on boats or like anything <laughs> like that um i wish i knew that you can't you may not go outside with your hair wet <laughs> okay. um i wish i knew that you put your gym clothes on at the gym okay and then uh -huh. when you're done you take them off and you put on your nice clothes uh -huh. to leave the gym feels like all of these are really rooted in like intense stories well i've been shamed a lot <laughs> okay. like very intensely okay and i don't want anyone to ever feel the way that i did um <laughs> Yeah, like the there's this like distinct like it's a super deep shame when like someone intervenes in your like day and they're like non si fa, which means that is not done. <laughs> yeah. And you learn to yeah. never do it again. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So yeah, burned into your brain. That's right. Well, we're a show on cookbooks. We always like to ask like if there are particular books or authors that have been influential to you, either as a person learning to cook or as an author that you turn to for inspiration. Yeah, I love the Imboca series, which was printed in Palermo okay. in the late 70s. Okay. Um, a little plug, Omnivore Books on Food does have some of these volumes. Okay. Uh, they are right they're over really, there. Yeah. They're really... Yeah, there's some here, there's some over there. Again, visual medium uh -huh, works right. great on a podcast. Yes. <laughs> um, I love I love the idea of like taking a whole region and distilling it into 25 recipes and doing it with really like wacky visuals. Yeah. Cuz the covers are real trippy. Okay. Uh, and Rodo Santoro, these. they're freaking crazy. Um Rhoda Santoro, the illustrator, still lives in Palermo. Okay. Um just did some really wild stuff and 
they're published on, I guess, like oatmeal paper or something. It feels like, huh. um, like a paper shopping bag. Huh. And that I always, I spend a lot of time with those books. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. What do you think makes a great cookbook? Uh, something that makes you either want to read it in bed mm-hmm. or immediately book a trip or mm-hmm. go shop for ingredients immediately. Yeah, great. Well, we always end with a little game. So I thought we would play a tour of Italy. Um, you have four decks here, uh, flavors, which are herbs, spices, proteins, proteins, vegetables, vegetables, and secret ingredients are sort of the wild cards. Um, so you can play this sort of like chopped, right? Draw one from each of the stacks, and that's what you have to work with. And tell us if that might be a dish that you could create somewhere in Italy, and maybe not be like totally shamed. Okay. I know you have a I'm lot of shamed afraid. stories, but um, and I'm very sorry if you draw the gummy bear card, but we'll see what you have to work with. <laughs> Okay, we've got duck. Okay. Kimchi. Okay. <laughs> zucchini and cloves. All right. So we're oh, traveling okay. around Italy. This is what you have to work with. Look, I think we're in the Veneto right now. Okay. Um, and we're going to have to just do this would Okay. It's a course-based society, right? Uh-huh. So you're going to have maybe some stuffed pasta with zucchini that's been cooked really, really soft. Okay. I know I'm supposed to put them all together, but this... I'm, no, you, you can course <laughs> it. That's fine. That's and fine. then you've got your duck, which is braised in like Valpolicella or something. And although we don't ferment a lot of things, it's not completely unusual to have like cabbage that's been cooked in vinegar beside a duck dish. Okay. So that's going to be the contorno, the okay. kimchi. Got to digest, bro. Yeah. So you got to make the cloves, put them in the Everclear, make your digestivo. Uh, uh-huh. Yes. And then... Do a little sipperoni, and you burned off all the the duck fat. Right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, one more round. Let's let's see what you this have to work so with fun. now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, cool. Okay. So we've got chickpeas, oregano, wagyu beef, and potato. All right. We're going. We're gonna do like. We don't really have wagyu beef. Sure. Really. Yeah. But there definitely are cultures like in the deep south um basilicata province uh, provincia di potenza where there's a lot of very like beautiful beef okay so there's not always the impulse to grill things like grilling is something that like honestly a lot of that grilling culture emerges in the 20th century when like british hunters shoot things and like grill for us and they're yeah. like we make stew <laughs> so um i would do a, i would do a Oh, so many, so much starch. I would do a beef and potato and chickpea stew uh-huh. in a very large cauldron in a shared courtyard in Matera, seasoning it with oregano. And that actually is probably a dish from Matera. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. That That's an easy one for you. Um, and then maybe we have some more of the clove digestif as well. <laughs> you got right? to. Otherwise, you're not digesting. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, this was so much fun. Thank you so much, Katie, for joining us. Thank you to Thank Omnivore you. Books and everybody here tonight. We had a blast. Grazie. Thank you. 
And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our website, saltandspine.com. If you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on Apple Podcasts. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worster. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney, and the Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers digital and in-person classes for home cooks, and you can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to our friend Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.